0: 2018 NBA playoffs are finally here, and it's one of my favorite times of the year. I love the 40 games and 40 nights, and uh, boy, are we blessed with some tremendous first-round matchups. Some years, you get some shaky matchups, but this year, the basketball gods reward us, and we've got some really intriguing matchups. The first being the Pacers and Cavs. Obviously, I'm a Pacer homer, but what an incredible first game by the Pacers, the way they came out. Took it right to the Cleveland Cavaliers. You know, I, I think after that game, some years you'd say, well, it was kind of a fluke maybe the Cavs weren't on their game but I think this Pacer team's a little bit different uh, they're versatile and uh, the way they can play they can go big with Turner uh, they can go smaller with Sabonis they've got some physicality with Booker inside and then they shoot the three ball pretty well and uh, old bogey didn't even get hot yesterday so Depot with a kind of a take charge mentality and really establish things early but I love how hard they play they got a ton of deflections and I think we're going to be in for a long series here and excited to see what the Pacers are going to do. The other thing I think stood out, I think it comes up every year, but the LeBron flopathon. You know, I want to touch on this subject because every single year we hear, and we heard it early in the year, LeBron was complaining about the number of times that he gets to the foul line. I'm 6'8", 280, I go down the lane and, and I have to play through more contact than everybody else. Well, to me, you know, when I watch the games, one, he bully balls. He doesn't, you know, he's not making second and third moves. He just lowers his shoulder and, and, you know, runs people out of the way. But if that's the same logic, then you've got to apply it to these instances where he dives into the crowd or he gets hit in the nose and, and acts like he got hit by you know sniper fire. It can't be both. You can't be 6'8", 280, I've got to play through contact, but I'm 6'8", 280 and I get barely touched and I fall into the crowd and I flop. And so it bothers me because, you know, you hear the debates of the LeBrons and the Kobes and, you know, and the Jordan. It goes back and forth every year, but the one thing I do remember of Kobe and I do remember of Jordan, you didn't see those guys jog back on on defense. You didn't see those guys flopping and they played in an era when it was significantly more physical. So the LeBron flopping I think was something that continues to uh, be a trend and I think it's something we'll probably see in in later rounds if they do advance. The other game that really intrigued me yesterday was the Celtics and Bucks series. I think the Celtics are going to win the series mainly because of Brad Stevens and how he prepares his team's game in and game out. But the talent gap has significantly shrunk. Without Irving, without Hayward, without Marcus Smart, it's amazing what he's been able to continue to do. But that game uh, was an interesting one, and it came down to the wire. And Celtics have a three-point lead. Terry Rozier leaves a wide-open shooter to go guard the Greek freak and gives up an open three. They come back the other direction, tie game, and, and you know Brad Stevens gets a lot of credit for his side out of bounds plays, and I think he's the best in basketball. But I think it's a little underrated of how simple sometimes his actions are that do create the open opportunities. Yesterday, it looked to me like he had a lot of false action on the baseline, and that play was really set up for Rogier to drive to the right side, and it kind of cleared it out, but he shook Bledsoe out of his shorts and ultimately ended up with a wide-open three-point shot. But the action initially created a wide-open driving lane, and Brad always seems to create a, a wide-open opportunity or a good shot in those situations, and you don't see that on every NBA team. Come back the other way. They're up three with .5 on the clock. I don't think you can found in that situation. I thought it was really interesting how they put five people around the NBA arc and dared the Bucks to throw it inside. And then obviously the Bucs make a really, really long shot. I thought Jalen Brown could have closed the gap a little bit more. It goes to overtime. And I think the genius of Brad Stevens is this. You probably thought you won the game multiple times. Multiple times they hit shots uh, to give second life. And in overtime, with maybe not the most talented group, he's able to regroup and get those guys refocused, and they go on and win the game. And you know, I think that's the mark of great coaching and and being able to get your players to bounce back from a difficult situation. So I'm anxious to see how that series plays out. The other series that that really intrigues me is the uh, Timberwolves and and Rockets. Uh, 1-8 matchup. It might not seem like much, but I think the the Timberwolves are a much better team than their seed. Jimmy Butler was out for quite a long time. Tibbs is a masterful defensive coach. He'll change his game plan. I don't think Harden will get 44 in the next one. But some interesting things, I think that the Wolves are leaving on the table right now. And I heard Tibbs say that... um, towns has to work harder for the ball but you know the one thing the Rockets are doing they're switching basically every screen I would attack harden every opportunity I got so that I wore him out on both ends of the floor and it seems like you could put your chess pieces wherever you wanted to and either get towns on the block in some high low or create some two-on-one situations with overhelp for open shooters and I didn't see them do that enough I watched their last game of the regular season against the nuggets they almost lost that game and I think towns went the last Five minutes of the game without even getting a post touch. So I think they've got to play through towns. I think it's an intriguing series because they do have the inside outside game that could give some problems uh, to the Houston Rockets. The other thing that surprises me about uh, the Timberwolves is I I call it the toilet bowl offense. Uh, A lot of times they just go iso ball, iso ball. When they're playing well and the ball moves, They've got a lot of threats. You've got Wiggins. You've got uh, you know Jeff Teague, who's uh, really good off the bounce. You've got Towns. You've got Crawford off the bench that can create his own shot. But it seems like when the game gets tight and they get close, they go to ISO ball. And Jimmy Butler's not a consistent enough three-point shooter. He wants to shoot his mid-range shots, and I think that plays into the hands. Of the Rockets. And then lastly, is how do you guard James Harden? How do you guard James Harden? I mean, clearly his ability is off the charts. His one on one game um, is almost impossible to stop. But I think you've got to decide we're either going to settle for, hey, we're going to let him take challenge threes or we're going to run him off the three-point line. I am amazed at how many step backs he got yesterday. And although difficult shots at some point, they're not difficult when uh, you know his capability. What's your decision going to be? Do you run him off the three-point line? Do you push him to his right hand and then flood the paint and then run on, run shooters off uh, the line? The one thing you know with the Rockets is their threes and twos. So once you help and commit and the ball gets kicked out, then you're running them off the line because you're not worried about. That mid-range shot—they just don't take many mid-range shots—and I think that's where the Spurs, I think that's where the Warriors have had success. I'll be anxious to see what Tibbs' adjustments are in Game Two. I don't think um, he's going to let Harden go for 44, uh, but I do think this series is going to go back and forth. I don't think it's going to be your traditional, you know, one-eight matchup where the one seed, you know, smokes the eight seed. I think it's going to be an intriguing series, and I look forward to seeing how that's going to play out. I love the playoffs, and I'll be sharing my thoughts on uh, different games uh, from time to time, strategy uh, as we get deeper into the playoffs, and some of the adjustments I think some of the coaches will make um, as the playoffs go. I'll be anxious to see if the Pacers continue to take advantage of the middle pick and roll when they put two on Aladipo and and give Sabonis an option to either attack the basket or, or kick it to the corner. So we'll chat more about that throughout the playoffs. When we come back, we'll hear from my dad, a legendary player at Purdue University, Bruce Parkinson. Our first guest this week I've known for 36 years. Quite a special fellow in my life. An Indiana All-Star. He's now in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. Number one all-time assists in Purdue basketball history was 690. 112 consecutive games started, best in school history, single-game assist record, and also owns a Pan Am gold medal. My father and the legendary basketball player, Bruce Parkinson. Dad, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Looking forward to it.
0: I've always wanted to have my dad on the podcast for, for the main reason of this. He's had a tremendous influence on my career, um, not just as a player, as a coach, but uh, all the stories uh, growing up and some of the unique things I got to hear that I'm not sure the public's gotten a chance to hear. So I want to go back and talk about your high school career. My first question for you is, you grew up in Yorktown, which is in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, similar to me, uh, obviously with you playing at Purdue, I had the pressure um, in high school of, of hearing your name. But your dad went to Yorktown High School and went on to play at Kentucky, uh, Was uh, won a national championship there as an All-American. Uh, he's in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. What kind of pressure pressure did you have going through your high school career to live up to the name of Jack Parkinson
1: I don't think it was quite like what you had Austin um in the Publicity and social media and things like that. Obviously, they were non-existent. And I had, Dad was really a low-key guy. Um, I really had to ask him to come out and shoot with me in the driveway. He always made he put up a goal in the driveway when I was uh, oh probably five or six, and I always had a good basketball. And we talked uh, basketball uh, some, but not like you and I did. Not the intensity that that we. Did. And, and again, I think it was because Dad's personality was low key. He played uh, out of state, of course, at that time. Uh, that was like the UCLA uh, when John Wooden, as Coach Adolph Rupp, uh, was coaching. So when I just somebody asked about one of the three of us, I said, "Well, Dad was the the legit All American. He was the real deal, and uh, we just tried to to play as as good as we could to, to live up to what he accomplished."
0: Well, he was an all-American in Kentucky, and then uh, um, came back and was a sub on that famous team, the the Fab Five played for Adolf Rupp. I mean, what what stories? Our, our grandpa was, you know, and, and your dad was a pretty soft-spoken fella. What what stories did he tell
1: you about playing for Adolf Rupp? Well, the one that always sticks to mind is uh, his junior year. He was an All-American his junior year and, and would have been a two-time All-American, but he had to leave to go to the service. And so then when he came back, Now, he wasn't quite as good as he was before, uh, and he played with that legendary University of Kentucky team. Um, But the thing that I remember is uh, at that time, the NIT was the national championship like the NCAA is now, and they were in New York City, uh, played at Madison Square Garden, and ended up winning uh, the NIT. And Coach Rupp uh, was known two things. He gave everybody A's in his class. basketball and he always said that uh, dad asked him once why why did everybody get A's and he said that uh, he wouldn't be a very good teacher if they all didn't get <laughs> if they all didn't get A's but after the game you know like uh, we would have per diem uh, when we're on the road and and that kind of thing coach Rep was also known as being really really tight and so he gave all of the players a dollar each to go out in New York City and celebrate the national championship.
0: Yeah, I don't think that would fly in this generation <laughs> with all the uh, money that's been flying around you see in the, <laughs> the newspapers. You went in to have a historic career uh, at Yorktown. Even when I go back in the, uh, the town, you know Trent and I, my brother, joke about um, you know people always seem to have a Bruce Parkinson story. You were the first county school to ever win the Muncie sectional. Talk about that experience, that game, and then kind of your uh, journey on as you guys went on to the regionals and and upset some teams.
1: Well, it's very frustrating. If you've been in a county school, Muncie Central Legendary, uh, they won, at one point, more state championships than any other school. No county team, not just Yorktown, but no county team had ever won a sectional. And so, and it was played in the field house at Muncie Central. So uh, we were lucky. It was just uh, one of those once in a lifetime things. We had an outstanding coach. Um, we had, we had a referee, I won't say his name on here, but uh, a referee that night who happened to live in Lafayette and knew I was being recruited by Purdue. And I got, <laughs> I got some favorable calls that night. I ended up Uh, I think that was my career high or close. I had 36 uh, in the championship game. I was 16 out of 16 from the free throw line. And the only one I missed, uh, the referee said that one of the Bearcats was over the line. I got to shoot it again. (laughs) So always before we just, uh, it was just we had a great coach, a great team, and we all played the best we'd ever played in our life. And how much that meant to me um, and the county, we went like a lot of schools you go back you go back to your school and you celebrate. We had players current players, former players from all the other county schools come to this celebration because we'd finally broken the barrier that that they had tried to, they had tried to break and um, it to this day it was even with all the things that I got to do with Purdue or, or representing the USA on the international teams, that was the single greatest uh, achievement uh, in my sports life, and I remember when we won the NIT in uh, Madison Square Garden. Um, three of us were at the podium, and media podium, and you've been in front of those. And you know, of course, at the Garden, uh, this is we'd won the championship, and the. First question that they asked me is, uh, Bruce, I know your dad played here. It's pr- I think we were the only father and son that ever played and won the uh, NIT. But he asked me, is this your greatest thrill? And I immediately said, no, it's when we won the sexual, uh, Muncie sectional in high school in our state tournament. And all uh, you could tell the media crowd all looked at me like, what is he talking about? And I said, well, let me explain. I said, how many times in your life have you done something, whether it's in sports or some achievement in your field, that you were the first ever to do it? That's what happened when we won uh, the Muncie sexual. And uh, and I never had another situation where that was the first time that uh, we'd ever accomplished something that no one else had accomplished.
0: Well, and I remember you telling me that story. And uh, the other part about it is I remember going through our, our basement uh, and going through some old scrapbooks and share with everybody, you know, everybody's seen the movie Hoosiers. I mean, if you haven't seen the movie Hoosiers, you, you know, you live under a rock, but, the fanfare that of them, you know, uh, lining the road and, and following the bus and everything that took place. I, I remember going through the scrapbook and seeing all the articles and everything that was written about that. And it's people just don't understand today because we have so many other things going on. But, you know, the best thing I can compare it to is in the movie Hoosiers. Talk about the fan experience.
1: Well, as I said, um, not after we beat Muncie Central to win the championship at the a field house at Muncie. Well, then we were playing. Uh, The number one team in the state, or Newcastle at Newcastle, first game of the regional. Kent Benson, uh, of course, became Mr. Basketball, number one draft choice out of IU. Played with the Pistons for many years. We were playing them, and nobody gave us a chance. And what I remember uh, going to, this was a Friday Saturday uh, situation back then. That Friday night uh, on State Road Three, coming out of Muncie, we had a police escort from Yorktown to Newcastle and we were on a curve and I remember looking back, and again Yorktown's not very big, and what you remember seeing the pictures in the scrapbook were were buses and buses and buses and there's no possible way we had that many people in Yorktown. It had to be all the kids and all the the people that lived, and and we tried to get them uh, on the bus and uh, it was a motorcade that was, uh, and we happened to win that one, and of course Kent and I have remained good friends for all these years so we beat Muncie Central's number four we beat Newcastle's number one and then we had to play Richmond uh, number nine who might have been the best team and uh the the clock struck midnight and we ended up uh, getting beat by uh, by richmond but man those three teams they any one of those three could have won a state championship
0: well i know that was the single class and uh you guys were the first to accomplish something that that nobody else had at that point as you mentioned but i probably i would suspect within those caravans were probably some of the other schools and their yep. fans just because you know they wanted to see the big dog go down and, and you guys were able to do that uh, obviously you were an indian all-star you knew you're going to play college basketball. You, I'm sure you were recruited, you know, pretty heavily. We'll get into some of the different schools, but how did you go about your process in selecting a school? Because, you know, nowadays the way things are done with social media and the recruiting process has changed. But what was your process in going through the recruiting, you know, of picking a, picking your institution?
1: Well, obviously, it was much different than, again, uh, currently, or even when you what you went through. Um, at that time, there were not a lot of rules. There was no AAU, so there was nothing there. So that meant the coaches were at your high school games. And whereas that's not the case uh, when I was playing, that was the only place that they could see you play. And Whereas now, I know you get commitments um, sometimes uh, in maybe late sophomore or junior years. Well, we never, at that time, never took our official visits until after your the season senior season was over with oh wow yeah and so um we got a lot of mail not nearly as much as you got uh it wasn't quite like that but i my last uh four schools and really it was the last three but ball state was close since we grew up in yorktown was miami of ohio and my high school coaches best friend was an assistant coach, Jerry Pearson, a wonderful man, a, a guy that we mm-hmm. still have a friendship with. He was assistant coach at Miami and then the University of Tennessee. And then, of course, uh, Purdue, uh, where, where I ended up going.
0: Well, tell us, tell everybody about your Tennessee visit, because there were several things that came out of that. And I'll let you share. But one, it was a unique visit. And then to uh, share how it kind of impacted you uh, years down the road.
1: Well, I'll start by talking about my visit at Purdue was just a a normal visit. We went on a Friday night, uh, roomed with a a couple of players and visited the campus. And of course, coming from Yorktown, it was huge. And I was like, uh, but that's where I kind of grew up wanting to, uh, at least my last couple of years. But Tennessee, um, just like they are now, was second fiddle to Kentucky. And so they really, really worked at it. And There are more restrictions in what you can do now, but I got letters and stuff from them every day, all kinds of creative kinds of things. And so on my official visit, uh, Ray Mears was a coach, flew commercial into the Knoxville airport. When we landed, the pilot came on the plane, Uh, on the uh, intercom in the plane and said, uh, welcome to Knoxville. So we have a special guest on our flight today. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder who that is. And (laughs) he he said, uh, we've got uh, Bruce Parkinson uh, from Yorktown, Indiana, who's here on a recruiting visit uh, for basketball. And and, uh, so, Bruce, welcome to Big Orange Country. And we would like for you to stay in your seat and be the last one off the plane. Now, Austin, I'm a little guy, and you know what it was like growing up in Northwestern. Mm -hmm. Yorktown was very similar. I was embarrassed. I didn't know how, you know, people were trying to figure out who this guy was. And so (laughs) then they're all watching me, and I'm sitting there. While that's happening, now I'm watching outside the window, and there's a collection of cars and people, and they're rolling out a red carpet. And I'm thinking, well, wonder who else is on this plane? Must be some political dignitary or that kind of thing. So I'm waiting. I'm the last one off. And I'll be darned if that red carpet wasn't for me. And there were there was a person from the mayor's office that gave me, welcomed me to the city, gave me a key to the city. Um, we had a police escort through town along the way from the airport to uh the hotel where we were staying on the marquee let's say it's a village pantry or a hotel where they have a marquee and they have a where they can announce things it said welcome bruce parkinson to big orange country now can you imagine coordinating that and so i'm about ready to sign before i even get to the hotel well the clincher so it was a great the whole weekend was an unbelievable visit as you know, I roomed with a guy named Austin Clark. He was a senior guard. He, At that time, it felt, I, I thought he was the nicest guy I'd ever met in my life. And I said at that time, if I ever had a son, I was gonna name him Austin. Austin was not a popular name at, mm-hmm. that, at that point. And so to this day, Austin Clark has no idea that you're named after him, but he was my host that weekend. The last thing that happened, uh, we were touring the locker room. Now, Purdue didn't have anything like this or anything like they do now or what you were accustomed to. But back then, we were touring the locker room, and each uh, each player, like they do now, have an individual, really nice cubicle, a full-size uh, cardboard cutout picture of that player mm-hmm. and then a gold plate of the state of Tennessee with their name and number. And so Coach Mears was walking me down through each one and tell me who was coming back. And that's where Ernie Grunfeld and, yeah. and Bernard King ended up coming. Um, but I got to this last one and there wasn't this cardboard cutout and I was just waiting on the story. And uh, Coach Mears didn't say anything. There was just a gold plate on the outside of the, the, the individual locker. And I said, well, whose locker is this? And he said, well, I'll take a look at that. And I went up to the nameplate and had Bruce Parkinson number 30, which was my high school yeah. number that is, you know, was retired. And and I mean, it took all I could do to commit that day. Uh, but if it hadn't been for Coach Bob, who was, you know, like your father and grandfather and my father, um, I ended up at Purdue, but I'd never had an experience like that, and uh, it was it was quite a show. Well, as, you know, as you mentioned, Bob King, who was a,
0: a really important part of our family, obviously recruited you, recruited Rick Mount. Uh I mean, was was a grinder. I mean, and and I would uh, tell the audience that he was definitely probably the difference maker and why you you know selected Purdue. You know, you end up going to Purdue, you have a tremendous career, and I want to talk about that. But I want you to tell a story because I think we all experience this in life as confident as you were as a player I think sometimes we need somebody to believe in us You know, maybe when we don't believe necessarily in ourselves talk about Mr. Thornburg and that story, that blew me away I, and, and, and I think you've told me this, versions of this stories over the years I think it was about a year ago you told me the full thing and I, I just couldn't believe it um, his foresight and just how it played out so tell, tell that story
1: Mr. Thornburg uh, was a played on state championship team at Muncie Central, and then he went on to play at Purdue, had good teams there. He was a basketball coach right up till my freshman year. Uh, But more importantly, he was our history teacher. Uh, He taught American history, and he was almost every Yorktown kid's favorite teacher he was rough and gruff and uh he he called everybody Jane my wife's maiden name was Bowie it was Miss Miss Bowie or Mr. Parkinson and I mean we would have run through the wall for him and and we thought everything he said was right And he used to run. And uh, at that time I didn't have brothers and sisters. So, and I was kind of young for my class. So I would be down playing ball in the morning by myself uh, every every day during the summer and Mr. Thornburg would be running uh, he always ran and guys, I was about half scared of him going into my freshman year I was scared of him going into my freshman year in high school and this was in August and uh, he stopped by the court he'd watch me there every day and and what would happen I'd play work on my individual game in the morning and then we'd come back in the evening and play in the park outside it wasn't like where you guys are now where you can play inside all the time. So Thornburg, after he runs, comes over the court and he says, Parkinson, what are your goals for uh, this coming year? And I said, Mr. Thornburg, again, I'm scared of this guy. Um, I said, I'm hoping to be able to start on the junior varsity this year. Again, this is going, going into my freshman year. And he looks at me, Austin, like I'm dumb as a box of rocks. And I'm thinking, oh, I've screwed up. I've answered the wrong way. Maybe he doesn't think I can start as a junior varsity. He says, "How many other varsity? How many other these guys that you're going to be playing with, or they're playing on the varsity, were down here this summer that worked out like you?" And most of the kids that at Yorktown at that time were three or four sport athletes, and I had kind of uh, focused on track and, and basketball. And he told me that day after he gave me that look like uh, I was dumb as a box of rocks that you can start on the varsity. Now, we had a really good team. There were about four guards that would have been playing in front of me and That never entered my mind. Um, in, In my wildest dream, I would never have thought anything beyond hopefully starting on the junior varsity. But what happened was, and it's like you said, if you have someone you hope in your life that believes in you, and he said you could start, and Mr. Thornburg was right about everything. And I thought, well, maybe he's right about this. And he changed my total orientation. And as you know, the rest of the story is he was right. I did start and beyond. And um, but that wasn't the end of the story. So now, fast forward, and I've had him as a, uh, in high school as a teacher, and, I'm, and I, you know obviously I've committed to Purdue, and I uh, was an Indiana All-Star, as you said. and stayed, But now I could drive my car down to the park, and he was still there doing the same thing. It was the first part of August, and it was getting close to when I was getting ready to head at Purdue. Uh, Here I'm out. But again, same story. I'm shooting. Here he comes and we're a little more friendly. I'm not quite so intimidated. He says after a little bit of chit chat, he says, and he never called Bruce he says okay Parkinson what are your goals for Purdue next year and so I'm kind of prepared for this it's something that uh and I I you want to be right with that person that you you know has faith and confidence in you and so I'm thinking I've got this I'm I've prepared uh, and I thought about it and I thought I said Mr. Thornburg I want to be third guard uh as a sophomore and start my junior and senior year at Purdue also he looks at me equally with that look or worse that I was the dumbest person that he had ever been around and I could tell I screwed up again and he said didn't you learn anything four years ago and I said Mr. Thornburg and I, I, I listed off these four four guards that were ahead of me, all really good at Purdue. And I'm just coming from Yorktown, and I'm thinking that uh, there's just no way. If I'm, I'd be lucky to be able to, to be third guard as a junior. And if I got to start coming from Yorktown in the Big Ten, that'd be great. And he said, I've watched you. I've been and I've experienced this. You can start at Purdue as a freshman. And like I said, and you know that story is, I it was not on my radar screen at all. He totally switched my mindset to maybe I could do this. And Thornburg was right one other time. And he's right about everything else that we all thought. And so all of a sudden, my goals changed. And uh, as you know, that ended up, I ended up starting and. When I was uh, got the call, just like Grandpa Jack, your Grandpa Jack uh, did, from the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. My first call was to Mr. Thornburg to say, this wouldn't have happened without you. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, it's just, it's such a good story. And I think everybody that's listening has that person, you know, that believes in them. Um, you know, one for me was Randy Lindgren, who was our, my sixth grade teacher. He was, you know, Trent's golf coach and uh, put me in some interesting situations, but, uh, but very similar uh, to that. So he has that conversation with you um, and obviously that flipped your mindset you did start 112 games at Purdue but you show up on campus you start seeing the other players in the fall you're playing with them as you got there what were your expectations after you saw everybody and kind of the makeup of the team
1: that's a great question and every practice was harder than my hardest game and that's uh, I've told your girls when I get a chance to talk to the freshmen and see them as how hard the freshman year was um, at that year was the first year that freshmen were eligible to play. Uh, and before that, they always had freshman teams. And I ended up uh, Mike Steele, Robbie McCarter and Brad McNulty and I were the four freshman recruits. And we dressed in the large combination football track. Uh, uh, uh um. And the, the the former freshman junior varsity basketball players and probably some others. And um, man, I mean, I just can't tell you how hard and big of an adjustment. And I unlike you, you were strong. You were physically you were strong coming out. I was very thin and I gained 20 pounds between my freshman and sophomore year in college. And so uh, I'd go back to the dorm and after each practice and eat and then lay in bed for an hour or two because I was I was just so physically exhausted but the week of uh, before the first game I went to get my stuff down there with Mike and the where the freshman would dress not in the Purdue varsity locker room where you you know where you were and my practice stuff wasn't there Uh, and so uh, I went to the uh, equipment guy and and asked where it was and he said you're, you've been moved down to the varsity locker room. And I said, what? And because I didn't, I mean, mm-hmm. Coach yeah. Schaus didn't say anything to me. I had no idea. It was just my stuff had been moved. Now, I got to tell you that every guard other than Rick Risinger and the guy I started with, there were a lot of not only guards, not only guards, but other um Uh, people who were their friends that didn't want to see me Mm -hmm. come down to that varsity locker room because I was going to be taking minutes away, away from them. But, um, but, uh, and I, I remember my first game, I don't know if it was like that for you, but as a freshman, I had to be the first one there. I had to be mm-hmm. get my ankle taped first, and and so I had my uniform on before anybody arrived at the locker room. And then the guys coming, strolling in, and, and we had a T-shirt that had our uh, kind of shooting shirt, we would call it, with our name on the back. I was so nervous that I had put it on backwards, and I didn't <laughs> know it. And, and that was my introduction to preparing for my first game uh, as a Boilermaker maker
0: so you obviously start your freshman year um you know obviously non-conference you get into the big 10 now everybody knows how hard the big 10 is the big 10 was great when you played big 10 still great in your first big 10 game you end up one shy one assist shy of the first triple double in purdue history are you thinking like hey this is cake like what's your thought process when you you know when you put that kind of game together in your very first big 10 game
1: well there's there's kind of two things three three things around that. One is going back to my very first game at purdue was against indiana state it's one of the first possessions uh that we have i drive around my guy go underneath the basket and do what you would call a reverse layup that's my first shot as a purdue boilermaker and i make it and so i'm thinking maybe this isn't so hard after all i miss my next nine shots i'm one for ten my first my first game as a boilermaker but The game you're talking about then was my first Big Ten game, and fortunately it was uh, at home, and it was against Illinois. And I mean, I high jump. So one of the things that was really, really important to me, I looked this up the other day, I'm embarrassed to say this because I've never even shared it with you, but I've always thought that I've had more average, more rebounds than any, any guard in Purdue history. And I'm one-tenth behind Etwan Moore, <laughs> at least of the ones that I know that yeah. would have played that much. And, and uh, But anyhow, I had 11. I didn't know this uh, fact that you're talking about until mm-hmm. uh, an interview recently that Alan Karpik from the Golden Black brought it up. I knew I had 11 rebounds and I ended up having nine my second game and I was averaging 10 as a guard and second second leading rebounder of Big Ten after my uh, first weekend, And but it was hard. I mean, I got beat up a lot because I was so thin, but my high school coach told me something that I've told you mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, for guards particularly. Coach Rogers said, "If you can play pass and play defense, you can play anywhere, anytime." Mm-hmm. And so, my whole focus of at my freshman year at Purdue was not trying to score. Okay. I was just trying to guard my man. I've been taught really well by a great defensive coach in high school, but I loved passing the ball, and of course, my teammates loved. Catching the ball and scoring, and uh, it just kind of worked, and uh, and and that became my role more of kind of running the team, uh, just like you did, and that was that was what I took, you know, that was my joy out of the game.
0: Well, two things I would add to that. I mean, I would say the pass and play defense. I, I always that's always stuck with me, and I've shared that, but I would add elite defense, elite passing, um, you know, and I would add if you can do two things really well, you know, maybe you're a great defensive player and a great shooter. Um, you know, you do two things really well, you're going to have a chance to play at the next level. The other thing would have been, it'd been nice if you'd passed along those uh, jumping ability to me, because <laughs> I think I was the only guy on the uh, Purdue team that couldn't dunk. So uh, that would have been, that would have been nice. You know, as I said before, I, I went through your uh, scrapbook quite a bit and, you know, served as, as a lot of motivation. I, I, I wanted to, you know, try to do everything that you did, but I came across a picture one time that, I, you know, I immediately, even though I wouldn't have known some of the characters that, that from your day, I came across a picture of you and uh, John Wooden. And then uh, now later in life, I figured out who Dick Enberg is, the famous announcer. Talk about that picture and what happened that day. And, you know, it looked like everybody was surrounding you. It was uh, it's one of my favorite pictures that we still
1: have it's it was that and a picture that i have from the panhand games are my two favorite pictures that uh, that uh, that i that i cherish um that was the second time we played iu that year and i broke my wrist my first senior year so i redshirted. and and so kent benson was actually uh a year younger than me but we ended up graduating from college the same year so um He had, of course, that wonderful 76 team that IU uh, undefeated national champion. Um, They graduated, so Kent was the only one of the starters that, that came back. We beat uh, IU by 17 at Assembly Hall uh, earlier in the Big Ten season. This was a Sunday national TV game. Now, when I say that, for uh, you know, now with all the games on TV, then uh, there was a Farm Bureau network that uh, covered Purdue games. And then there would be one Saturday and one Sunday national game. And that happened to be a national game. And of course, the lead announcers, uh, Uh, were Dick Enberg and and Johnny Wooden. We beat IU that day. I don't remember by how many, but um, I... fortunate was fortunate enough to set the arena steals record or break the mm-hmm. arena steals record that day and that was the reason and I, I probably was in double figures or something but I still remember having a towel around my neck and those two on either side and like you said people surrounding us down on the floor for that interview and I have no idea what they asked me but uh, I was just so humbled to uh to be a part of of those two uh two legends and uh Uh, And as to beat IU twice in in one year, it it hadn't happened in my other four years.
0: Now, we'll get into the Pan Am uh, stuff later, but you did bring up the picture. Since you did bring it up, um, what inspired you to grow the
1: Wyatt Earp mustache? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, We had uh, my freshman year, I didn't. And uh, at that time, (laughs) they had mustache and the long sideburns. And oh, my gosh. Uh, And of course, the other thing that you guys have always teased me about is the really short shorts that we wore back then. But you're now in style. I was going to say, they're maybe starting to to come back. I
0: I looked up at men's. uh, The men's team was practicing the other day. And uh, one of my players even said, like, what are they? Why is his shorts so short? And I thought, well. <laughs> that was the style that my dad played. Yeah. The other performance I wanted you to talk about, um, because uh, for me it's meaningful, um, was your 18 assist. Single for the long time held the Big Ten record. And I'll say this on here I'm still pissed about it because you had 18 assists. And I want you to talk about that game. And did you know, you know, you were close to that record? But that was a competitive game. This was not, you know, this was not some 40 point blowout and your coach left you in the game. I remember watching the game where Mateen Cleaves broke your record and it was a blowout again. I think it was against Northwestern. I'll have to go back and check the team. But Izzo left him in and a ridiculous blowout just to get the record. And so, I still feel like his record was meaningless but talk about that 18 assist performance because that was uh, obviously
1: a highlight of your career. Well, uh as today assists are a critical statistic along with a zillion other statistics that you all track and even have services that do that for you back then my freshman year uh, around the big 10 and clearly around the country it wasn't quite an accepted statistic uh, yet that was sort of official so The 18, I had no clue. I mean, we were playing, trying to beat Minnesota. And uh, my freshman year, Minnesota had uh, four or five draft choices. They ended up winning uh, the... Either I thought I think they won the the Big Ten but Minnesota back at that time was a really really good team and um, I had no clue I mean I can't tell you anything that was different about that game other than the fact that we were trying to win and it was a home game and Minnesota was uh, always and then afterwards uh, I was like 18 holy cow that's a that that's a lot and I uh, like you I actually, I remember watching that Mateen Cleves game as well. And um, I won't, you've said it. You oh, got, it it you ticks me it. off because, you know, I play, like, that was the stat that, um, you know, my goal
0: was to go to Purdue. And when I did get to Purdue, I wanted to break your record. Yeah, and I, sure. obviously, I didn't, uh, you know, play the minutes and, and didn't have that opportunity. But um, that record meant something to me mm-hmm. because I knew how hard it was from an assist standpoint. And, um, you know, I liked Mateen Cleves and I love watching Great those player. teams. But man, that really ticked me off. <laughs> the, uh, I want to want to tell the people listening something that when I was being recruited and uh, very early on, um, you know, whether IU showed interest or not, you know, I was recruited by Kentucky and Texas and Connecticut and a bunch of different places. But you told me from the time I was little, if I went to IU, you wouldn't come watch me play. (laughs) And I lead with that story to people think that the IU rivalry like started when Coach Katie was there and that's not the case. Um, that goes all the way back. I mean, this is a long time. So you share about the Purdue IU rivalry and your time and the disdain for each other. Now, I know, obviously, you're friends with some of the guys you played against, including Quinn. And we'll talk about Quinn. I'm friends with some of the guys, including, you know, Jared Jeffries. But in competition, there's a hatred there. Talk about that.
1: Well, um it, it started with Coach Knight, where, again, I can't comment because I don't remember all that much. Uh, I, I remember the hurrying Hoosiers before, mm-hmm. before Knight got there. But, you know, Knight, uh, those were the years. When, uh, when he started coaching was and that Buckner, Wilkerson, Scott May, John Laskowski, Kent Benson, uh, many have voted That's the all-time best team in college basketball ever mm-hmm. in history, and I would I would say that's the case. And Knight was an a-hole, you know. He was, uh, uh, but the kids. The the other players, just like when you played against them, uh, man, you, it was what all you talked about. You know, it's the, you live and, of course, at work uh, after after playing and that's all you talk about leading up to it and afterwards and how, as a player, your career is defined by, you know, how that uh, how that goes. I was recruited by both, but IU kind of came in a little bit after uh, the fact and you're either going to go to Purdue or IU. You're not, yep. you know, normally that that's not going to happen. But Coach Schaus was a big guy. He had a, my coach, Fred Schaus, he coached Weston College. He was a Lakers general manager. I mean, he was big time before coming back to college and he didn't much like Knight and Knight did a lot of antics on his TV show that that Purdue people didn't like either. But but the players... Great competitors, great people, um, great great competition, um, but never anything dirty. The mm-hmm. dirtiest team that I played against was my freshman sophomore years was coached by Fred Taylor at, I, at Ohio State. His mm-hmm. dirtiest team by a long shot that any team I ever played against.
0: So with with the Hoosiers. Everybody that I know talks about uh, your guys' battle, you and Quinn Buckner, and I know Quinn's been great to me and our family, and I know you guys uh, are still friends. But at the time, I mean, you know, Quinn was elite, and you were elite, and you guys had some really you know strong head-to-head battles. You know, what was your mindset going into those games, and uh,
1: just share what it was like to compete against each other. Well. Quinn was more heralded coming out of high school. He was a two-sport All-American. And whereas now that never happened, he actually if I remember right, one year, maybe even two, played football, mm-hmm. too. Um, but he was—I uh, don't know if, if we even had McDonald's All-Americans, but we had our versions of those. Quinn played in the best of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would have been one of the top five recruits uh, probably in the country, and more importantly, he was a winner. Mm-hmm. I mean, his teams won, and he was because he was a football player. He was really strong. And again, you know, I was thin. I ended up being about 185 my last two or three years. Well, Quinn was always around 200. And they only had two referees then, not three. And there was a lot of hand checking. And and Quinn and Bobby Wilkerson were the two best, I believe, the two best defensive guards on one team in the history of college basketball. And um, with not only that, but IU being our rivals, sometimes I didn't have very good games. If I had bad games, it was usually, at that time, Northwestern wasn't very good, Wisconsin wasn't very good, Michigan State was so-so. Those were the teams that I didn't, play well against sometimes iu every game was my best game best games of the year and it was just uh, wanting to compete against your arch rival and for me again it probably meant more than me uh, for me that did quinn in terms of this matchup but by our junior and senior year it did get a lot of press in the indianapolis star as they the head on head and um most of the time we were guarding each mm-hmm. other and uh like I said that uh, those were my best games. You went on
0: and one of the accomplishments your team had during your career, I think it was 74. I may have the wrong year, but uh, you guys went in and won the uh, NIT. And uh, the NIT at that time, the NCAA tournament only took one Big Ten team to the tournament. And so to go and win the NIT, you know, you easily could have been one of those teams in the final four of the NCAA. I mean, that's how good your team was. What was it like playing in Madison Square Garden? And then what was it like, I'm not even sure who you beat in the final, but what was it like to win uh,
1: a championship? Well, uh, a little background. So you're right, just a conference champion. Uh, I believe it might have been Michigan that year. And I believe that was in a playoff, if I have my years right, uh, between IU and Michigan over in Champaign on a neutral site. Uh, IU, as the runner-up, got sent to uh, what was called the Commissioner's Conference, I think. It was in St. Louis. (laughs) And Knight called that the... His team, he was mad from the beginning. Called it the armpit of America. Oh, and of course, you imagine everybody in St. Louis how they how they reacted. And we got to go to the pillar of college and professional basketball, Madison Square Garden. We were playing our the first team we played was North Carolina. They were like number I believe nine in the country. Um, I only took this was an eleven day, whereas now it's not like that. Mm-hmm. There, you were out there eleven days if you won, uh, finally got in the championship game. I took clothes for the weekend because I didn't think we'd win. I never mm-hmm. told anybody that <laughs> at the time, obviously. And I had to buy some clothes while I was out there, and we ended up staying staying there. But, uh, but it was, uh, I mean. These were teams that were really, really good that um, would have been uh, probably uh, IU and our team because we ended up all in the top 10 at the mm-hmm. end of the year. Top yeah. 10 in the country yeah. at the end of the year. Um, we would have been a uh, no worse than a three seed in today's mm-hmm. uh, tournament. So we played some really great competition. We ended up be- beating Utah who had beat us earlier at their place uh, in the championship game. What was it like I mean,
0: playing in the garden? I mean. Oh,
1: it's, uh, well, when I was playing, one of my first idol was Jerry West. My next idol was Walt Frazier, mm-hmm. and he was a defensive guy. Uh, and he was, he had, uh, kind of a, some, uh, uh, oh, some, I don't know, some class about him. He was known for how he dressed. He was the best defensive player. And the Knicks were really, really good with De and Willis Reed and Bill Bradley. And so we were playing a home of the Knicks and we got to watch them practice one day. Um, it's, uh, and of course, having read and heard about dad playing there. And I mean, there was no question, uh like the magnificent arenas that you got to play in yeah. around the uh, country. Now there was no doubt in anybody's mind that Madison square garden. So it was really special for me, given that dad had won the tournament and played there and, and they got the key to the city in New York city uh, when, when they won. And, um, and I'll never forget the uh, two, two takeaways. One was the announcer with that Eastern uh, mm-hmm. twang that, uh, that uh, announcing us, And the other was, was that the referees out east let us play mm-hmm. and it was as you know as a player you don't want that uh ticky tack stuff and <sighs> it was more like playing in a pro game yeah uh, out there in the garden you had an opportunity
0: to be part of a team that won a pan am uh, gold medal and i want you to talk about that but i want to hear you know share with everybody your your initial meeting with the chief Robert Parrish um, that's one of my favorite stories from childhood and then obviously <laughs> when you guys went to the movies with him
1: well um, back then uh, I think it was Salt Lake City where the uh, Pan Am tryouts were and I was actually I don't know if you knew this but I was only a, an alternate mm-hmm. and uh, for the tryouts we ended up playing that spring in uh, Italy. Uh, and so uh, while I was gone, I got the invitation as an alternate to come uh, to the tryouts. And um, so I flew in. I had no idea who my roommate was. We stayed in the dorm uh, in Utah at the college and um, I was watching tv down into the common area uh in the dorm and not knowing who my roommate was and so I got back to the the dorm uh unlocked the door and it was dark and I was thinking gosh am I going to have a roommate this week And so I flipped on the lights, and all of a sudden, I looked down, and the the largest man I've ever seen ends up getting up out of his bed, and I'm looking up like I'm a three-year-old kid, (laughs) and it's Robert Parrish who gets up out of bed. Now if you if you've heard him be interviewed he has a really deep voice he we voted him captain he was an absolutely great guy but he was from centenary then and not that many he's a little bit of a mystery because this is his kind of coming out uh, party from but i thought oh i have i th- i wasn't sure whether he's gonna shake me my hand or punch me in the nose because i woke him up but he gets up out of bed and his really deep voice and he puts his hand out and he says hi i'm robert parish and that was. Was my introduction to one of the fifty best basketball players in the history of, of NBA basketball. And the other story
0: was uh, the, one of the famous movies of all time, Jaws, you yeah, know, by Steven Spielberg. Uh, you guys went and saw that
1: with Robert. We were training. This was uh, for uh, the second team that most of us played on together, uh, Robert included, uh, called the Intercontinental Cup, and we played in Europe uh, for over there and then four games back. Dave Gavitt was our coach and we were training at Providence. And it was one of those things uh, where we practiced twice a day for probably 10 days before we left for Europe. And this is one of those days that we they took us to a theater and Jaws was playing well. Uh, Ernie Grunfeld, uh, I think he's still the general manager for the Bucks. Joe uh, Hassett played for the Pacers, played at Providence. And I sat behind uh, Robert and several other teammates. And I don't know if you remember early in the movie, where they have uh, dove uh, in the water and that old boat has a hole in it and as they're swimming up to it, one of the head that had been severed pops into that hole. And it's the scariest point of a very scary movie. So we knew what, I mean, it I about wet myself when I actually saw it for the first time. And so we knew it was coming. And so uh, we all, we looked at each other and we kind of act like we, we're going to grab Robert from behind. And when that head popped into the hole, we go, uh, we grab Robert from behind and he goes, oh, and the whole theater about scared the whole theater to death and then everybody started laughing but robert's deep voice and and oh i'm telling you that that was the story that lived throughout (laughs) the eight weeks that we were together
0: hey probably lucky he didn't knock you out or something like that well so after the pan am experience you win a gold medal you know Some people may or may not know this, but actually going into your original senior year, you got hurt a couple games in, broke your wrist and really probably changed uh, the landscape when you came back. You were still good, but probably not quite as good. You've talked about that. You were drafted uh, not once, but twice uh, in the NBA. Um, You didn't end up going that direction. You didn't pursue that dream. Talk about what it was like to be drafted, uh, the emotions of being drafted, how you found out you were even drafted, because I mean, obviously, you know, you weren't there, mm-hmm. um, and then, how close were you to actually pursuing that dream?
1: Well, at that point, you there weren't one and duns or three and duns, and so um, because I broke my wrist. My graduate, I was in a graduating class that year, 1976, so I was actually eligible for the draft. Well, as you said, I broke my wrist and I had a cast on for five months, so there's no way, but, uh, but the Cleveland Cavaliers actually drafted me, I, I don't know, fifth, seventh, ninth, something like that um, round, and they had 10 rounds at yeah. that time. Uh, and that first year, the ABA was still in existence. So there's no way. So I came back, and it was just kind of a fluke. Well, then I was drafted, and you're right, I was... uh, I was playing the best basketball, uh, and I'm absolutely 100 percent convinced that I would have had a, some career in the mm-hmm. NBA if I wouldn't have had that broken wrist coming off the Pan Am and the Intercontinental Cup games and playing with guys that I know that mm-hmm. you know ended up being stars. But um, having a cast on for that long, five months, and then the recovery time, I just wasn't quite uh, <laughs> didn't play quite as good as I needed to play to to be at that level. So I was drafted by the Washington Bullets, who went on that year to win the world championship. It was also the year that the ABA and NBA merged. And there were a zillion players on the market. It was also a year where they reduced the roster size in the NBA Mm -hmm. by one spot. So the Bullets didn't even have a rookie camp. They were so good, and they felt like this was going to be a really special season. So it was just going to be go of the fall, get cut, and there's no way I would have made, uh, I didn't think and uh, that I could have made that team, and then hope to maybe get on with someone else. Well, at the same time, um, I had a Red Mackey scholarship, and Coach Shouse had said I could be a grad assistant, and so it was, toying between: do you go get cut and and try and um, and I made the practical decision, maybe versus the emotional decision, and uh, it was really hard. Uh, up to that point, it was the hardest decision I'd ever had to make in in my life, and um, as it turned out, you know, I had a wonderful corporate career, and and uh, but mom uh said for probably five to ten years i never noticed it but it come a time of the early october when the nba would start there she said that i would kind of go into a funk mm-hmm. thinking that you know remembering back well what if what if and you know it just is one of those decisions and uh it was just a very very tough set of circumstances yeah. that
0: well, I don't even think I realized the perfect storm of the ABA thing. I don't think you'd yeah. ever really shared that with with me. You know, you kind of mentioned it, but what was it like? tuning into games, and I'm not going to say the names of the players, I'm not going to throw them under the bus, but I know the names of some of these players that you dominated in college, that you had much, you know, better college career, um, that went on to have, you know, 12 and 13 year NBA careers. Um, how hard was that? And did you ever second guess like, man, I, you know, I used to work
1: that guy. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll mention one name, uh, who ended up having a probably, I bet he played uh, seven to twelve years, something like that. Uh, Mike Dunleavy. Mm-hmm. I think it. I think it's the Dunleavy that you knows, Dad. Senior. Yep. Yeah. And he played somewhere out east, if I remember right. And I, I was told that was between him and I, as to who was going to make both of these teams. Mm. And I ended up in uh, uh, making those uh, U.S. teams, and he didn't. Uh, he went on and and tried out and. Uh, uh, and it was the one and only time, Austin, that that uh, I I didn't follow my high school coaches. Uh, you could play anywhere you want if you passed and played defense. Mm-hmm. And when you look at teams now, and, and I know that uh, you're really, really good about figuring out the right roles for your girls. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I was taught that at a very young age by by Coach Rogers, and. When you look and, and you made the comment, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. If you could do two things in basketball really, really good, mm-hmm. maybe even elite level, you've got a chance to play anywhere. Mm-hmm. And my passing was was elite Mm -hmm. Uh, i i don't think there was a better passer in the country and i got people shots right when they needed Mm -hmm. them you made the comment we just watched lebron play one thing about a great game great win today by the pacers but um, lebron throws passes where people need to shoot Mm -hmm. that was my thing and I think you know, looking back now, if I would have believed in myself maybe just a little bit more, that there's a role of anywhere from a seven to twelve guy on a team. Uh, if you could, you know, pass and uh, and you know, fortunately in the NBA there are a lot of people that can shoot and score. Mm-hmm. They just need people to get it to them. Mm-hmm. What you know, you talked a little bit
0: about the changes. Um in college basketball, you know, you're still a season ticket holder at Purdue. Um, You know, you watch NBA, you watch college. What do you think are the biggest changes from when you played to now?
1: Well, some of it started when I obviously followed your career. And there are so much uh, resources now to support total success. And and of course, you're talking about millions and the NCAA billion dollars yeah. worth of revenue. Um, the people that you had strength and conditioning people. And now uh, you've told me that like Purdue has a, not only a video coordinator, but an assistant video coordinator that one of your best friends and uh, Kenny Lowe was when he started out in, in his career and uh, all of the uh, uh, weightlifting and Training science that's behind it, and then all of the statistics that are available now, and analytics that uh, that cause you to. Um, one of the things that I believe I would have uh, excelled in that environment because I wanted more information. Yeah. I wanted, you know, now you, you can pull up videos of, I would have studied, Yeah. I would have studied players if I would have had the video that, I mean, we got to see a little bit of film clips and, uh, and the really good ones do that. Uh, and particularly as a guard and you ran teams, that was your strength, just like it was, Was my strength, and that means not only do you need to be um, do you need to be fully knowledgeable of your own position, but the positions on the on the floor and who likes the ball when and where, and uh, making sure that your team defense uh, came together. Um, What I don't like, so there's there's so much so much analytics now that makes it. Either hard, or um, or or really advantageous for the ones who want to put in the time mm. and and who study, uh, who study that that kind of thing. Um, the thing I don't like, and what I've really enjoyed, is watching uh, the warriors move the ball. Mm. Watching some of these. Um, College teams, uh, Rhode Island, Loyola, how mm. they moved the ball, drove the ball. I hate this pick and roll at the mm. top of the key. That you know, you watch, geez, time after time after time. Um, but uh, a lot of teams now, it, it feels like they're starting to be a bit of a shift. And even we were talking about, you know, what maybe you know, you're thinking now of, of going forward, watching all these three point. Yeah. Uh, shooting teams and um, and and. Why they've selected that philosophy, uh, but and of course the the strength and the training and even the food uh, the mm-hmm. the nutrition uh, that, uh information that's available none of that was available in my time. Well, I think the bigger, stronger, faster.
0: I think that's an, you know kind of an obvious thing because of the training and that type of stuff. But you know you mentioned a couple other things. Uh, one I would say is the strategy part of things. Uh, there's so many different ways now to go the pick and roll and different strategic things that have come aboard the last, you know, 15, 20 years. What I think's ironic is uh, you don't like this, you know, pick and roll basketball and you would have been outstanding. Yeah. And, and for you individually, it would have been, I mean, you yeah. know, John Stockton, but I agree. We talk about all the time. I mean, we watch games and we text each other um, how many of these college men's games um, you watch and it's like, what, what were they working on? all week in practice that we're just going to throw it around for 20 seconds and then ball screen and then throw it around ball screen now there's some different teams now that use it to get matchups and like today we were watching the pacers and they use the ball screen to create matchups where were two-on-one situations um, the other thing i wanted to ask you and i wonder if you remember if you remember this but your games, um, you know, I was not ever able to see you play until mom got your games put on a reel onto a, a mm-hmm. tape. And one of the things growing up for me was we would watch games and uh, for my high school games and we would go back and, and you typically controlled the remote and rewind and stop and rewind and stop. <laughs> and my uh, old teammate, he's now an assistant coach at Miami, Ohio, and was two time defensive player in the year of the Big Ten. Kenny, mm-hmm. Kenny Lowe came over to the house and, uh, we watched you play <laughs> I know where now go. I have read and I've heard about all this defensive stuff and you know, that you were this really good defensive player. And, and I'm not discounting that. Um, my question is what were the other four cats doing out there with you? Because when we watched that video and now what you've seen, yeah, what, where would you rate the level of defense being played in that in that game? and, and, and re- I had the remote, and we yeah. rewound it probably oh, yeah. 50 times, yeah, and we remembered. loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the the quality of the players and the quality of the game that's the difference. Yeah, and it was cool. It was uh, funny listening to you guys react, and and uh, you know my my goal as a defensive player one was if he averaged 24 or 21. He's not getting 21. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, that's we we talked yeah. about that when you were playing, but we weren't, you know, we weren't strong, we weren't as fast, we didn't have the, you know, the analytics, the the understanding. You talk about things with your girls. That's why I think you've been so successful that you've taken this knowledge from the men's game and imparted it in the the women's game and you talk about I mean, Today we watched that game, and a guy that was supposed to be guarding a shooter, um, who what, what? What game was it that uh, it was the end of the Bucks game? Remember that? Yeah, that Rozier bluffed on a guy and left a shooter to go cover cover the God, Greek you yeah, look. yeah, And I, I hear you talking. I know what you know as you talk about preparing for these teams and teaching your girls the the subtleties of mm-hmm. that and there aren't a lot of people talking about that. Men's games, women's games. And, um, but we, it wasn't even in our vocabulary. And, and, uh, uh, and of course, Indiana, was known as the best team defensive team in the country and you made a comment a while ago about i should have enjoyed a pick and roll well one of the reasons why i always played so well against indiana is because their defensive tendencies they never switched Mm. so we brought john garrett up to set a pick on me yeah uh, and Benson, we didn't we didn't even have the term hedge. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. We didn't even know that term, and you guys talk about it all yeah, the yeah. time. So I knew Benny would never switch, mm-hmm. and so we ran that pick and roll, and I got a bunch of points because. Knight would kill him if he switched. And uh, that was a funny afternoon watching
0: you guys. It's funny you say that because, you know, everybody talks about Coach Knight and Coach Katie, but they were really the first coaches that emphasized defense on a regular basis. But yeah, that day we watched that video. The one thing I do remember, and Frank Kendrick, uh, you know, family friend of ours and, and recruited me. But uh I joke the other thing that stood out from that tape. I mean, Frank had the quickest trigger of anybody <laughs> I'd ever seen. I mean, you know, you were a phenomenal passer, but you know, that the Warriors shoot it quick now. And and Frank Frank might have got subbed out on the Warriors yeah. had he, you know, shot it that quick. He played on the Warriors. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, reason know, reason I know, that. I know, yeah. I know. This group of Warriors. Yeah. This group of Warriors. Yeah. So a couple things before we get out of here, but uh you know, you were a parent of uh me playing college basketball and now you're a parent that sits in the stands while I coach which one was more stressful for you
1: um playing yeah because uh I know how hard you worked and I know um the time that you put in and one of the things that you haven't you you haven't said is that you um you didn't get to break my assist record, but you would have had you played the minutes that I played mm-hmm. and, and you still have a better assist to turnover than I ever dreamed about, uh, there. But I think it, it was harder. The social media was not like it is today, mm-hmm. but it was starting to pick up a little bit. And, um, boy, you guys had injuries, uh, when, you know, when you were playing, I'll, I'll never forget when you guys beat Duke up or up in mm-hmm. the greater Alaskan shootout toward the end of the non-conference season and we were about to go into the Big Ten and and I think there would been a good chance you could have, you guys and then we had the mm. academic thing and the injury thing and um but it's uh as I said the conversations that you and I have had uh, I didn't have those with Grandpa Jack yeah um, it just uh it, it was just a very different I wanted to please him, I suspect similar in the way that yeah. you wanted and Trent wanted to, to please me. Um, but um, it's just a, a different, uh, you know, different climate now. But uh, watching you coach and watching you play, I mean, it's a for a parent. It's a roller coaster. You're so excited. And, you know, when you hurt, I we hurt. Yeah, mom yeah. and I hurt. And when the girls are playing, uh, I think... I might have been most proud of your coaching in a whole lot of different times um, more recently because of, you know, the victories and big wins like Missouri and Purdue. Uh, uh, but early on when you first started and not in the best of situation and those teams with not your players and and not the kind of talent that you've been able to recruit now to see that growth from a couple of wins to get to 500 and how hard you had to work there man those were um and we're rung out. Mom and I are rung yeah. out at the end well, of the day. And, and,
0: and I know, I mean, as, you know, obviously, I joke around with people and say you're my fourth assistant coach because <laughs> we talk so much and you see yeah. my teams. But, uh, you know, I mean, I appreciate you saying that about the assist. But I, I, I just think I was limited. You know, I, I didn't do as many things well as you did. And I think one of the things you did, you really scored the basketball, um, you know, incredibly well. Even though you maybe your numbers weren't 15, 20 points a game, you know, you were always a threat uh, on the floor. And I just didn't shoot it quite as well. But you're probably not as stressed at the uh with me coaching because you you know know I've got a little more sense than I did with my <laughs> my playing ability but uh my last question for you is this because you know you've always given me great advice over the years and a lot of those things have you know stuck with me I, you talk about the uh you know if you can pass and play defense and one of the other things that always stuck with me was when you coached my sixth grade team I mean I know that sounds silly but we had a kid named Ian Blankenberger who was our center and you know, you've talked a lot about not just getting players shots, but when you get them shots. And Ian was a kid that if you got him a basket in the first minute or two of the game, you know, he could get you 10 points and 10 rebounds. And uh, if he didn't get a basket early on, his confidence wasn't nearly as high. And, um, you know, he just, he, he w- probably, you know, four or five points and three or four rebounds, you know, something in sixth grade that we were talking about. And I still think about today with the rhythm of the game and the flow of the game. My last question for you is this, you got a lot of college uh, or young kids, that that want to play college basketball do what you did do what I did and what advice would you give them as they try to pursue uh, their dreams of playing at the college level
1: well first of all it would continue to be that um, pass and play defense uh, because that was that's just was the orientation I, I grew up with um but nothing comes without a lot of work. And watching, uh, you know, whether it's boys or girls, I probably watch more uh, uh, girls' high school games than I do boys' high school games now. And then watching them as they, they get in college, there are so many resources that are available uh, from, again, from like the coaching staff and statistics and, and video and that kind of thing that, um, You're going to get out of it what you put into it. And it's not only physically on the court, but also uh, I I hear you guys as coaches talk about our game plan was this. And you've got some uh, you've had some players over the years that understood and translated that and made it happen on the court. And you have others uh, over the years that um, were unable to do that, either. Either because they may not have paid attention as much as they should have, it wasn't as easy to um, to to, uh, to digest, and uh, and and now watching what eight years, the, mm-hmm. uh, watching your g- girls for eight years, that uh, there have been girls that have maximized um, their capabilities what what they bring to the party because they put in the time they've listened they've uh suggestions that as a staff you guys have made you can watch them change put incorporate those changes over the years and others I watch and and actually some that we've that were some uh pretty good players some starters over the years that you look at and um, maybe have done the same thing their senior years they were doing their freshman year Uh, and so i would say that there's more in your their own personal control with the resources that that are available uh, that can influence what they're going to be able to achieve i wish if i look back in my career that i would have worked harder a little harder in the conditioning aspect it wasn't that i didn't but it wasn't nba level like Mm -hmm. you hear and read about these athletes now that uh we would go over and run the hills at slater hill and and get done as quick as we could so we could go back over and 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 play in in the gym um there was more I could have done. And that might have been just that little edge and, Mm -hmm. you know, between college and pros. And of course, your question was high school and Mm -hmm. and college. Um, uh, Just taking advantage of what's available to them and working at it. And uh, there's, there are absolutely no shortcuts or it would, everybody would be able to accomplish what very few are able to accomplish. Yeah, I
0: mean, we talk a lot about the pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, you hear a lot of people talk about what they want to achieve and what they want to do, but their work ethic a lot of times do not match up to their goals. And, uh, you know, I think back to the stories you told me and, and I think back to when I played, and, you know, even my wife, you know, Whitney doesn't understand some of the stuff. I tell her about, you know, on a Saturday night, I might be in the driveway till 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I remember our neighbor, uh, her bedroom, Uh, was right backed up against our you know where our goal was and you know i'd keep her up at night with that ball bouncing and Mm -hmm. you know today i think uh you know sometimes as you mentioned it's a microwave uh you know generation that they want things here and now but like you said you're not going to cheat it you're not going to cheat you know there's certain steps you got to take and um The other thing I would say is being efficient, you know, with your time when you do put in the time, Um, you know, I'm amazed we have, you know, trainers, uh, everybody has a trainer now, and that's not always a bad thing. But uh, I was talking to a coach the other day, I mean, you know, they're practicing 12 euro steps and, you know, all these fancy things versus the fundamentals and, you know, being able to pass and catch and subtle stuff that you and I talked about all the time, like coming off a ball screen and being able to look the defense off, um, you know, versus telegraphing passes. And so, um, you know, I think those things will be important. Well, uh, obviously, I mean, you know, you're my dad, I love you. And it's been, uh you know, great to to be able to have this discussion, but I've heard this stuff for a long time. And, um, you know, I've, I feel like I've had a leg up on everybody uh, over the years because of our discussions. And I still appreciate now coming back from games or practices and being able to talk about what, what my teams look like now. So (laughs) you had a heck of a career at some point here. I expect uh, you'll be in the Purdue basketball hall of fame, Uh, Purdue uh, people out there. It's time Uh, 112 uh, starts all time assist leader there's no doubt that that's going to take place at some point but uh thanks again dad for joining us and appreciate you being on the pod thanks bud take care thanks again for listening to the podcast hope you enjoyed our mba discussion as well as taking a trip down memory lane with me and my dad as we relive some of his uh stories from his playing career at purdue university and beyond if you enjoyed the podcast please uh subscribe to park's podcast on itunes Uh, don't be afraid to rate our podcast we love to get your feedback so thanks again for listening this week Hope you have a great week and enjoy the NBA playoffs.